0: Hello everyone! Welcome to episode 40 of the Switch Focus podcast. We're fast approaching the age where we're going to start having some midlife crises very mm-hmm. shortly, I think.
1: Speak for yourself.
0: <laughs> With me, as always, we have Ginny Wu and Andrew Brown. How have you been finding the week?
2: Um, Very busy. Very full of Octopath Traveler. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> just fine. No- nothing special, fine. just fine.
0: <laughs> Adequate. Uh, so with that let's uh get straight on with it uh, updates from the previous episode so i recently bought a game boy color off the internet that came with the uh, camera and a copy of uh, donkey kong land mm-hmm. and the d-pad on the game boy color was shockingly bad so uh the store that i bought it bought it from wanted me to return the whole bundle Uh, and I didn't want to do that because the camera was great and the game was great so I had a look into it and I figured I could fix the d-pad myself Uh, so I bought some uh, rubber conductive pads off the internet but while I was doing that I spotted some replacement shells for the Joy-Con and I've got my old grey Joy-Con just sat in a box so I thought why not? have a cool set of joy-cons so i ordered some of them a kit to to do it and uh yeah it took me four hours uh one weekday night but i managed to uh mod my joy-con i've now got see-through casing with snes colored buttons that's the euro snes andrew not the horrific purple and yeah it looks great they work fine as far as i can tell they're working completely (laughs) but the uh I think the worst I've got is the left trigger. is feels a little looser, but it works perfectly fine. I think that was just from wear and tear from before. And yeah, super happy with it, using them. It looks great. Hasn't affected anything. But on the other side of the hardware spectrum, recently in the news, I think Nintendo Life were the ones that ran a story on this basically people are reporting that the switch casing on the console itself is cracking uh people are adamant they haven't mishandled it or dropped it and when i read the story i was one of those that was like they've clearly not been looking after this very well (laughs) like it doesn't just crack and then yesterday i noticed mine has a crack and i've never dropped it i've treated it like my little mechanical baby and yeah, so I'm very very gutted about this. Uh it it's only very slightly cracked, but you know it has the potential to get worse. And I'm of one of those mindsets where I'm going to keep thinking about it every time I go to use it or undock it and it's always going to play in my mind. So I thought about contacting Nintendo, another story ran that they were charging people 180 pounds to get this fixed which is almost the price of a new console Woof. yeah and they're treating it all as accidental damage i don't think it is it's only occurred in the last week yeah so i'm just gonna have to live with it i'm sure i'll get over it at some point point. Um, and when they eventually do like a special edition model i'll probably pick that up until then i now have a cracked machine uh, i'm guessing your you two's uh are, are okay at this point
2: Yeah, no cracks in mine, but um, I think Andrew and I were both having the same Joy-Con-related issues with the launch day Joy-Cons earlier in the year, so not all perfect.
1: And now my Pro Controller is also having problems too, so...
0: (laughs) Oh no. So yeah, I've had no Joy-Con issues, and I thought I would, having finished this modding job. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. I barely use the Joy-Con separate from the device, so I'm probably not going to notice... Any like disconnection issues? They were my original launch JoyCons that I modded. Uh, also, I think one of one of them is rumbling slightly less than the other, but I never have it on anyway, so it's not really going to bother me. alright okay, moving on. Uh, you'll not very much Switch related, but you'll be pleased to know I finally finished a Pokemon game in the last week. Which one? Yeah, Yellow.
2: Pokemon Yellow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, after you both gave me grief about it on one of the earlier episodes, I I was halfway through it. Yeah, this was on the uh, 3DS uh, Virtual Console release, Mm. so uh, I've been chipping away at it like you know, ten minutes to half an hour at a time. It's taken best part of a year, but I finally beat it. I got Mewtwo as well at the end. And I've now transferred them all into the poker bank, ready to use in uh, Sun and Moon for whenever I can be bothered playing that one. Cool. So that's one thing out. I've, I've, I. One thing you can score me less for. Uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward to playing some more Pokémon. I kind of wanted to finish Yellow on the basis that Let's Go is a remake of Yellow, so I, I'm in a good position to be able. To Judge what's improved and what's different, yeah. apart from the catching mechanics, of course. Lastly, this updates from the previous episode is all me this week. So. <laughs> uh, I've put a lot more time into E8. Uh, so after that uh, wonky storytelling in the beginning, uh, it's a really, really great JRPG. Uh, super enjoying it. It's got base building elements. The, the pacing is perfect. You always feel like you're working towards a thing. It sort of sits as like an amalgamation of some of my favourite bits from Xenoblade Chronicles Two and some of my favourite bits from Nino Kuni Two. Uh, particularly with the in the combat, uh, the story does get a lot better. Um, what I will say about Eze is it, it really complements. Octopath Traveler, in that it's it's really not grindy at all, and Octopath Traveler is, but we're going to touch on that shortly. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll report more on Ease 8 as I get even further into it. But I'm enjoying it to the point where I really didn't even want to start Octopath in the last week, and has contributed to me playing it the least of the three of us, which is amazing considering it was probably my most anticipated game of the year. Mm. Uh, but we'll get onto that shortly. You're fired. So uh, let's. <laughs> So let's talk about the latest Switch news. Okay, first up in the... Well, the only thing in the Switch news, really, is Fortnite Season 5 has landed. I uh, haven't had chance to look at it yet. Andrew, you've taken a glance, have you?
1: Yes, lots of new changes coming to Fortnite in Season 5, and apparently I'm the resident Fortnite player inexplicably... To (laughs) defying all rational thought and reason. Uh, uh, The big event at the end of season four was the supervillain lair outside of snobby shores launched a rocket into the sky that created cracks in the fabric of reality. And season five has started and we've started to see the end results of those cracks where Uh, One of the farms in the northern end of the map has been transformed into a golf course, and the entire southeast part of the map has been transformed into a desert. Uh, So it's kind of cool to go to what once were familiar areas and find completely new buildings and new topography there. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I'm sure this is completely ordinary standard stuff to people who play MOBAs and uh have played PUBG, but it's new to me and i think it's cool uh it also added all terrain carts uh which is the first proper vehicle that has been added to the game up to four players so a complete squad can ride around in the carts uh whereas before they just had shopping carts that were not very fast and were really only useful for going downhill but there is a proper vehicle in the game now but you can't use them to run into people you can just use them to run around if you run into a person they basically bounce off (laughs) and they have rebalanced some stuff it's not the big announcement they made a few weeks back of rebalancing the crafting component of the game or constructing buildings that stuff is still exactly the same as it was but shotguns have been slowed down uh so it takes longer between each shot which has gone a long way i feel to reducing the prevalence of shotguns in the metagame and also smgs feel a lot more viable now i've at the start i was immediately feeling like a, a submachine gun is actually a better option than a shotgun but not always the downside is on the performance issues because season four on fortnite on switch ran very well but i'm running into a lot of issues in season five where it takes longer to load into the game and it hitches now every now and then you'll be looking around and suddenly the game will just freeze on a frame for about a second or two and then it'll catch up to itself and also just the textures don't load in as well as they do when i first started playing it was a bit fuzzy it's gotten a lot better in the past week but it's not running as well as it has i'm sure they'll fix it over time but it's not running great on the switch right now could that
0: be related to server issues new season everyone excited to get on it maybe
1: maybe i don't know i couldn't say i don't know uh uh w- looking around and having your camera freeze for a moment that feels like uh, something on the game end something out on the server end but i could be wrong yeah that's fair
0: that's fair that's it for news so uh, let's talk about what we've played this last week <laughs> So, more on Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. Uh, Andrew, I believe you've been playing the third game in that trilogy, Warped. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I started it almost as soon as we were done recording last week's episode. And I got through it in about two hours. Had uh, I known it was going to be that short to get through it, I would have just done it before the recording last week because I had time to do it, but I thought it was going to take as long as the first two took me to get through it, but... Uh, Big reason it didn't take me as long to get through it was because it was much easier. So I enjoyed this one the most of the three, but that isn't saying much. I still felt like I would rather be playing any other platformer. A big thing that went into the easiness was it was a lot easier to get extra lives. It still has the same rule where if you get an extra life, then it disappears until you get a game over. But it also gives you a lot more apples in every crate, so it was pretty easy to stay up on lives every time I died and it added vehicle levels which were just bad they controlled poorly and the enemy ai was quite aggressive and i'm sure it had some slingshotting in there or uh rubber banding and yeah just i was not a fan of any of the crash bandicoot games i was very disappointed
0: do any of you caught up to andrew with crash bandicoot are you still plugging away at the Unseen trilogy or anything
2: um i played one and two and then a little bit of three and it's just i do agree with andrew's assessment i think i mentioned it very briefly last week that three definitely feels like the easiest it just feels like the hit boxes make sense crash appears to control better than the other two but really it's not saying much i think unless you're someone that's wildly nostalgic for the crash franchise like i was when i first bought it if you've never played a Crash game before, I don't think there's any need for you, for you to subject yourself to these older, less, um, older, I guess, clunky controls compared to modern platforming. Like, I mean, I think Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze is a great example of a nostalgic platformer that's been redone well and makes sense and plays terrifically. Crash Bandicoot, not so much.
1: Yeah, but the original Donkey Kong Country still plays great too. I mean, I think Crash Bandicoot was just bad to begin with. We we didn't know any better.
2: Yeah, I think so as well.
0: <laughs> the shift to polygonal gaming probably took you know took a lot of the negative points away from it. Maybe just the the fact we were moving on from the 16-bit era level of mm-hmm. difficulty just made it a bit more palatable at the yeah. time. It's not something I was ever obsessive about, really. I, I played the demo a lot. I never owned the full game. Uh, Crash Racing was fun. Crash <laughs> Team Racing. As a Mario Kart ripoff, but yeah. I think that's the one that people really want to be re-released. <laughs> Chocobo Racing. That's what we need.
2: Yeah, Chocobo Racing. Hell yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay, so Ginny, you've been playing a game called Bomber Crew...
2: Yeah, I have been playing a game called Bomber Crew. Um, unsurprisingly it's about bombing things. <laughs> oh, I would never um have <laughs> It is it is a very, very um poorly hidden World War Two adventure. <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean um, you know, you're you are kinda of like an RAF pilot and you're definitely fighting against the Nazis. They're not called the Nazis in the game, but like the accents are there and the the period jokes and exaggerated accents are also present in the dialogue. Like you know you're fighting Nazis. They're just not called the Nazis. Um so yeah, you and your ragtag crew of complete amateur pilots basically get um I guess marshalled up like you did in the day to go fight for your country against um against the against the forces, the Ace forces. So um I admit I don't have a lot of background about World War II from a Western perspective, so I couldn't comment on the historical accuracy of the air raids that I was participating in, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the, the decals on the planes were not traditional either. <laughs> um, but all in all, it kind of reminded me the most of Faster Than Light, if you guys have played that game. Um, And if not, basically, the game is not just going on air raids with your crew. Um, It's also about actually building, buffing and managing your plane in order to get you the best outcome when you actually engage in aerial warfare. So it's got some management sim elements to it. At least that's how I think it's best described. So you basically have multiple stages to a level. You can actually start off by making sure that you've got all the right equipment for your for your plane Make sure that everyone's in the right place and that you've got everything that you need to actually succeed. And then the game kind of pans you into your flight run. So this could be either you running across the channel, bombing some factories or bombing some bases, or running into like stronger enemy ace pilots and things like that. And as this happens, it's all happening in real time. You are taking damage from outside sources you know it could be the weather's going wrong it could be you having some trouble navigating it could just be enemy ace pilots firing at you but basically your plane takes damage in real time it helps to not only pilot it in the right direction and fulfill your mission but to actually run your team around and repair bits and pieces here um, without the whole plane going down so i had no knowledge of flying and um how piloting planes works. So I died a lot very frequently originally because I kind of panic and go, "Oh, there's a hole in my f- there's a hole in my fuselage. I got to get someone to fix it." I click on a crew member and it'd be my pilot. So he'd run off from the controls and my plane would just <laughs> nose dive and I would die. <laughs> <laughs> so um don't do that. If you're if you're um playing this game, don't just panic. Um you actually do need to go into each mission with a really good idea of what each of your characters' skills are and what their positions are on the plane. Um, I found it best to kind of divide my plane up. Like, okay, I've got my pilot and engineer far away from each other. That way I wouldn't risk, like, selecting one instead of the other when I'm kind of running around trying to get stuff done and things like that. So it's really about managing your characters' individual roles in the scheme of things when the going gets tough because the game throws so many visual indicators at you like, you've got your fuel tanks going, you've got the enemies blaring, you've got music that kind of comes in randomly when you've got, like, a strong ace pilot up against you. Everything can get very, very, very hectic. So it's really worth it, I think, trying to have a think about what the most practical setup for your crew is. Not unlike other strategy games, really, but instead of, like, a battle squadron, think, like, I guess, a pilot squadron? Um. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you like or have an interest in World War II history, this game will probably have a little bit more for you from the narrative perspective. Again, I suspect it's highly, highly fictionalized, but you'll probably have some kind of point of reference with things like base names, plane names, and commander names and, what like, and stuff like that. So you might find that more interesting. I found the gameplay side very interesting, but I, again, like I said, as a complete idiot when it comes to planes, I found it incredibly difficult initially. And most of it was just me kind of screaming to myself and praying that um, my pilot wouldn't just fall out the window if the air changed. So (laughs) it is definitely a game that's got a lot more depth than the low kind of poly resolution suggests. But if you're someone like me who doesn't know anything about planes, doesn't really know much about World War II from the Allied Forces Western perspective, you're probably going to find it hard to stick to unless you really, really enjoy the strategy side of it. So I think it was fun. I liked it. It made me take a chance on games I don't normally play. Like this is not at all my kind of visual style or game style. But I thought it was really fun. And I think if you want to take a chance on it, I'd recommend it.
0: Makes note, don't send pilot to fix part Yeah, do not. please
2: don't do that. Please (laughs) never click on your pilot and panic and go, he can fix that window. It's only two steps away because your plane will just lose control of your plane and everything will go to crap.
0: Uh, okay, so back to something Andrew's been playing, uh, Riptide GP Renegade. Uh, this sounds like a wave race style game. Is that accurate? Or am I just being, like, game racist? <laughs> racist?
1: It is a racing game that takes place on the water and you drive a vehicle called a hydrojet. Uh, and you do ride on waves now and then, but waves aren't a huge part of the game. Uh, it's set in a future world where there are an official Grand Prix organization set up for these races, but you actually play as a character who got in trouble for challenging his rival to a race outside of the Grand Prix and was banned from the organization, so you have to do illegal races in order to get your revenge. It's a. Uh, the plot is misleading, because it makes it sound like there's a lot more going on there than really isn't. Really, you're just doing races on the same six maps, uh, and that's really all there is to it. There is a story that unfolds at it, and you unlock a bunch of different characters to join your crew, and you unlock all kinds of hydrojets that you can slowly upgrade over the course of the game. Even though there are only six maps, I actually didn't get bored with any of them. Uh, They kept me engaged, because they're all decently long maps and they're fun to get through and the best thing about the game i think is just the way it handles the way it feels because like you know when you're playing i don't know if you've played any water-based racing games but like when you hit a wave just kind of like the feeling of it and just the kind of heavy feeling of going around a corner that feels completely different from a driving racing game do you know do you know the feeling i'm talking about <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I get what you mean. yeah yeah This game, even though it's a mobile game, I think I got it for $4 on sale, it actually captures that feeling really well. And it's got a few interesting twists on the racing that change up how you have to really approach each lap, because it's not just about knowing the best course to get through it in the least amount of time, because what your opponents are doing actually affects how fast you're going to be going an awful lot. Uh, there's a boost system in the game where you earn boost points for doing tricks off of certain things, so it's often worth it to avoid taking the shortest turn so that way well, you can hit a trick off of a ramp and then get your boost meter up, and then also your opponents, as well as yourself, can actually get a pretty good speed boost by driving in the wake behind of the person in front of them, and that's really important for being able to stay in first place or actually, not staying in first place because person in first place doesn't get that advantage so it's kind of like uh formalizing the rubber band ai into the concept of the game itself and making it so the player can actually take advantage of it too because even if you get pretty far behind if you can manage to get in the wake of the person in front of you you will get a huge speed boost that'll let you catch up Uh, The last level is like a boss fight against your rival and it was was pretty bad because they changed up the rules of the game so that way there were these explosions everywhere that messed you up every time you ran into one and they were basically impossible to avoid. But aside from that, I quite enjoyed this game. I thought it handled really well. There's a lot of things to unlock. There's a lot of bonus chapters in the story that I haven't even done yet. It's... An impressive game for what it is I, i'm not gonna say it's the best racing game i've ever played but it's certainly the best racing game i played this year
0: wow uh, that that boss fight thing I, I hate when games do that where they spend a whole game teaching you skills and then just throw them out the window for the final because you know you got to do something different it's like the, the the last level or the boss fight should be like a, a culmination of everything you've learned so yeah that that sounds pretty disappointing to me but Sounds like you were positive on it on the whole. So, yeah, maybe check that one out if you're after a futuristic water racer. Ginny, the other game you've been playing, I've not heard of this one.
2: <laughs>
0: Holy Potatoes, a weapon shop.
2: Yeah. Please explain <laughs> this one. It's called Holy Potatoes, a weapon shop. And I don't know if you guys, um, you guys probably can't tell because I didn't really enunciate that correctly. But the actually, it's actually meant to be called holy potatoes, a weapon shop? There's a question mark at the end. So ah. um, it indicates a sense of disbelief. And I think suspending belief is what you need to actually play this game because you play as a potato, a sentient potato, in a universe full of other sentient potatoes. Stay with me. <laughs> I know it's already quite strange. But um, if you guys have played games like Weapon Shop, The Mase, and um, basically any any sort of like shop running simulator it's basically that except everyone in this universe is a potato so it's a shop management sim whereby you play as the lowly grandson of a once famous um weapon shop owner who gets conned into basically only owning one percent of your of your late grandfather's shop while the other 99 percent belongs to some shady um al pacino type potato (laughs) And basically, he signs you into indentured loan servitude. And your job is to make sure that you earn enough money to dig yourself out of that and to restore your family's name as the best family of potato crafters around. So (laughs) it's um, plot-wise very very esoteric and very eccentric. Um, But basically, you are a potato shop, a potato running a weapon shop, and you service everyone from a guy that needs a metal bucket To famous heroes and by famous heroes i mean riffs and parodies of popular actual heroes so like um cloud spud for example instead Mm. of cloud strife (laughs) and he'll come to you asking for a buster sword and um so you'll have to i guess take on these major quests and assignments from heroes to give them weapons that they want and yeah, it's it's not particularly heavy on the narrative, as you can tell. It's really just about enjoying being a potato, crafting different kinds of items and gaining a reputation in your region for being the best little potato smith ever. Um, So in running this shop as well, it's not like traditional management sims whereby usually you just have to cram as many workers as possible into... into the most into the tiniest space like you know usually games are like okay for peak efficiency you're going to have 20 workers in one cubic foot of space and no one takes any toilet breaks kind of thing um but here you're actually encouraged to give employees proper space and access to materials Uh, you're meant to give them time off and vacation and professional training as well um and i suspect there's a potato workers union somewhere that's pulling the strings here but um, you're definitely encouraged to to lead into the needs of each of your employees to keep them happy and to keep them working for you. So you're not so much like the evil boss as just um, the, the guy trying to, trying to, I guess, what's the word for it? Um, yeah, trying to regain his family's, his family's reputation whilst also being like the good guy around town. So uh, there's not a lot to do. Um, you search the world, you craft weapons with your mates, and all your mates that work with you have their own own skills, which make them better or worse at crafting certain kinds of things. You then sell those things to people, to heroes, to anyone, and you use the funds to make your shop better. So the gameplay loop is very simple and very predictable, but it is really fun, and I think it's still sub $20 on on the Switch store, which is not that different from its Steam price when I first tried it on the computer a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, one year ago. So... If you like shop management sims, this is a very, very fun and very, very silly take on it. I do think the controls are not ideal for the situation. It doesn't really feel right to play with Joy-Cons because there is so much going on when you actually have to craft things. There's multiple menus and navigating around with just the Joy-Cons cursor indicator feels really, really clunky. And touchscreen is not ideal either. I don't really um, enjoy using the touchscreen to tap on things because I am now very conscious of how many fingerprints are on my screen. And also, it's (laughs) the kind of game that I want to be swiping up and down the screen on, you know what I mean? It's not like a rhythm game like Voez, whereby I'm okay with that sacrifice, I guess. So controls-wise, it could be better. Um, I haven't tried it on a Pro Controller, but I imagine it'll just be the same as playing it um, in handheld with the Joy-Cons. But if you like funny games, um, if you like management sims, if you think this potato idea is hilarious, then you know, I think you're gonna love it. There's not a lot to lose from trying it out, and it's a casual, uh, family-type game. Like it's definitely safe for kids. There may be some innuendo, but it's disguised to the point. Um, it's disguised by its potato core to the point whereby kids wouldn't really recognize it at all. So yeah, no, it's a it's a nice, relaxing game, much unlike Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. So,
0: so let me just get one thing straight. It's a game where you have to make sure your employees get time off and are happy. Yeah. So the potatoes have better lives than a lot of developers at major publishers.
2: They do. Yeah, they get regular vacations and (laughs) adequate compensation and windows in their workshop. So yeah, I think they're doing really well. Doing better than I am, Uh, for sure. uh,
0: I guess if you're a potato, the the term crunch would have a very different meaning.
2: Oh, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so lastly, Andrew, you've been... Checking out a game called Galak Z, variant S. Uh, Now, let me get my genre prediction hat on again. This is some sort of shmup.
1: You might think that it even slightly resembles that, but it's really not. Uh, This is actually a new free-to-play game on the Switch eShop. It's out in North America. I don't know about other regions. And it's... Either a remake or a sequel of a game that's on the PlayStation Network, because I remember having it on PS Plus, I also remember having no interest in playing it, but I did stop and check this one out on the Switch. You play as this character who has just come out of some kind of vortex with a robot and has to help this other person fight against an evil empire, you know, that kind of thing. It's not very original in its plot. Uh, And you have one of two ships you can control in a top-down space environment. Uh, You have a giant mech suit that has melee attacks that you can charge up, and you just have a standard spaceship. And you move around these top-down environments that have very enclosed walls and obstacle courses with explosives and spikes on them that you have to maneuver through by using the right and left shoulder buttons to thrust yourself forward and backwards— and then you try to blow everything up, and you get to the end of the course, and then it'll open up another course, you can move on to the next one. And it is a free-to-play game, so there's lots of currencies involved that you unlock over the course of the game, plus a premium currency you can buy with real money that you can use to bypass having to play levels to earn the other currencies to boost yourself through the game. Uh, the main thing that I see that there was to buy was new robots you can use to buff up your ship and also to earn your ship upgrades faster because ship upgrades come from this item that randomly drops from certain enemies in certain levels and then you give it to a robot for them to research what this thing is and then it throws it in like this big pile of your upgrades and you need like to assemble all of the parts for each upgrade before you can actually use them it's terribly complicated i don't think i could even explain it in a podcast in a way that would make sense but there's a lot of grinding that's going to be happening here i tried to just play through it as far as i could i got through about the middle of the 10th or 11th level in about an hour, and even then the game was already getting much, much harder. So I think if you want to go all the way to the end in this thing, you're either going to be spending a lot of time grinding or you're going to be sinking uh, 40 or $50 into it, if that's your thing. Uh, I don't think I'll be coming back to this one, but it's there and it's a perfectly serviceable free game if you're looking for something to play.
0: Cool, let's move on to the big releases this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, first up we have Captain Toad Treasure Tracker, of course a port of a Wii U game. Uh, for me it's another pleasant as anything BT Nintendo game. It's not going to blow your socks off, but you're going to have a lovely time playing it. Uh, I do have to apologize to Andrew. Uh, it, the game did have more touchscreen <laughs> related elements than I remembered. You don't uh, have to apologize,
1: have I knew I was right.
0: Oh. Wow. Wow. Well. Well. You're you're in trouble after this mister. <laughs> uh, I uh they they put in a workaround so if you're playing handheld you can use the touchscreen. I've played nearly all of it handheld. Uh but there is a pointer if you're playing docked. Uh does that work with the Pro controller?
1: I only played it with the Joy-Con so I don't know. I would imagine ah. not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see the Pro Controller listed on the back of the box, so that, that could be worth an experiment. Uh, you've played it all docked with Joy-Cons though, is that right, Andrew?
1: Yeah, I streamed it start to finish with an asterisk uh, last night. It took me a little over two hours, and I got all the collectibles, and I found all the, uh, the hidden pixel toads, but I haven't finished all the challenge times. But that's only finishing book one, because once you do finish this game, which is not that long, but it's a quality game. What is there? You do unlock book two, which is like a remixed version of the game that you play as Captain Toadette instead of Captain Toad. So, I've beaten it, but that isn't to say that there isn't more to do after you know you've you've sunk your two to three hours into it.
0: Yeah, that was my question for you actually, because we both track our completion progresses over the year, uh, and I was going to ask you about whether you would consider to- Captain Toad's Adventure to be the completed element, or whether you're doing all three books. Because I think there's a third book as well, like a bonus book.
1: Yeah, they've added the bonus book in this one. I guess in the original Wii U release, the book three, all the bonus levels in that were based on worlds from Super Mario 3D World, which was not... They weren't that well-received, but in book three, in the Switch version, they're actually based on Super Mario Odyssey. Now, as far as tracking my completions... I finished book one and credits ran. I saw credits, the game's beaten. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's fair. That's fair. I think I'm going to go the same route. Uh, So for those that don't know, it's basically like uh, Captain Toad is in a diorama and you have to basically work your way through a series of puzzles, finding gems, but your ultimate goal is to get the star at the end of the level there at enemies from the mario world so shy guys are are pretty common and basically you have to sort of work your way from start to finish i really enjoy solving the puzzles they use the perspective on like these dioramas really well you have to keep turning them to to find secrets or to see the way ahead um But Toad obviously controls very differently to Mario, despite there being a lot of Mario elements. Uh, He can't jump, he can only walk. He does shrink and can grow again with mushrooms, which is a bit like cannibalism, (laughs) I guess. Uh, But it's got a lot of gameplay elements that came from Super Mario 3D World. Of course, Captain Toad made his debut in that. I think that was his debut. And then he spun off into his own game from there. So there's a lot of, like, you know, duplication cherries and things like that. So there's a lot of familiar Mario elements at play as well. Uh, I'm using it as my Saturday afternoon chill game, so I put some TV on and then I just play this for a couple of hours. I'm, I, I'm about seven levels in. Uh, Ginny, we haven't heard from you yet. You've been playing it?
2: Yeah, I've been playing it too. And... Uh... This is the only game whereby I accept Toad's proclivities and yelling wholeheartedly and don't have any complaints about it. Um, In Mario Tennis Aces, I was getting very frustrated because of Toad's constant, yeah, every time I messed up or I had to listen to his annoying dialogue every time you lose a stage. But I digress. That's all right. I I moved past that.
1: I swear at the beginning of a level, he says diaper adventure. (laughs) Yes, I heard that in the Wii U version as well.
2: It is really it is, it is really strange, but I've just accepted that sometimes he just speaks in Jewish and that's his thing, and I shouldn't judge him. Um, so I put my personal feelings about Toad as a character aside and the legitimacy of his captain title, and um, I found myself enjoying this game, um, even though I want to know why he's got his headlight turned on full blast in the daytime, but I suspect no one will actually tell me why. Um, it's because he's
0: an adventurer.
2: Despite him being horrifically energy inefficient and probably more lucky than skilled. I have found the game extremely adorable, and it has, and now that I finished a couple of weeks ago, um, all of Kirby Star Allies single player, um, I now have a new, as in, as Andy said, Saturday Afternoon Cars kind of chill out game. I'm really enjoying that, um, the whole, I guess, diorama turning things around aspect. I actually don't think I played this one on the, on the Wii when it first came out, so... This is my first time experiencing these, I guess, box panorama puzzles. I think they're based on a kind of Japanese puzzle, but the name escapes me. But there's a kind of puzzle format which involves, like, rotating a cube around and getting something from path A to the exit. So I, I can clearly see how the levels have been designed very well. And I think it's just small scale enough that that it fits with, I guess, Toad's shtick. Um... I really, 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 really want to try the Super Mario Odyssey levels because I loved that game and was wrapped about it. And I think it's going to be really cute to see him and think about how you see him in Odyssey, where he shows up you know, on top of random towers, going, Hey, it's me, Captain Toad. And um, just, I guess, having a little bit more insight into his explorations outside of the Mushroom Kingdom and caves filled with lava and dragons is quite cute. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I think I've done a little bit of a 180 on my initial hatred for Toad. <laughs> which was coloring my vision. And yeah, no, I agree with Andy. It is just um, a pleasant Nintendo game. It's not like mind-blowingly amazing, but I don't think it has to be. I mean, it's Captain Toho Treasure Tracker. It's basically a glorified minigame. Um, I think it does exactly what it should do, and it looks great doing it. But also, the pointer is big. The pointer is really big. I hate it. I don't know why the pointer is so big.
1: I got used to the pointer after a while, but I did agree it was quite... <laughs> it was quite obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs>
0: uh there was just one other thing I wanted to mention. So we talked about the there's like several levels of challenges. So you can get all the gems, you can then go back in to find like a pixel toad. I think that's new.
1: I, I from the Wii I I couldn't remember if that was new or not.
0: I think it is. Mm. Don't quote me on that, fact checkers. <laughs> uh and you can also go back in to do, like, a, a hidden challenge that's it's secret until you beat it. So you might have to, like, not kill any enemies or kill all the enemies or not get spotted and things like that. Because mm. uh, the levels are small enough, like, I actually feel compelled to do that for a change, whereas, like, in terms of, like... Kirby Star Allies and Donkey Kong I, I kind of had no interest in going back into a level to find all the hidden stuff right. this I absolutely do get that urge just because it's such a bite sized little puzzle uh, and anything that you collect obviously the progress continues I'm not sure on the gems because I found all of them on the first go so far but uh, they the progress sticks so it's just easy to jump back in and run through the level really quickly to find what you want uh, so I'm really enjoying that aspect too Uh, yeah. Okay, moving on, so lastly we're going to talk about Octopath Traveler, Uh, so it's one that I've been anticipating for most of the year, Uh, and then uh, Ease 8 has been so good that I almost didn't want to start it this weekend, but I have. I actually played the demo the night before and got three hours head start, Uh, so let's, uh, yeah, let's get into it. So It's obviously got a very unique graphical style, they're calling it um, 2D HD, or something along those lines. Uh, I was sold on this from the second I saw it in a Switch preview trailer. How are you getting on with it visually and the style, what do you think?
1: I don't want to say that I don't like what it's doing, but I, I don't agree with how other people are describing it necessarily i've read several times that it was like 16-bit character sprites walking around in an hd environment these these are high definition graphics because it's on a high definition system and it's running at 720p but how i look at it as is it's actually like a how a a super nes game would look if it was in three dimensions but was still using those 16-bit art assets Uh, i think it's very striking i think it looks really good for the aesthetic it's trying to capture but there's this really aggressive blur filter that's used in a lot of places that i think gets in its own way Uh, especially in ophelia's chapter where there's several moments in her opening chapter that are supposed to be very dramatic taking place on this hill overlooking the cathedral in the background, but the background is so blurry that you can't actually see the cathedral. You can just kind of see this shape with some lights in it back there. So it kind of undermines itself there. Uh, I think this is a great-looking game. I just I don't want people to get the impression, as I have gotten from several of the reviews, that uh, this is, you know classic final fantasy characters walking around in a modern final fantasy environment because that's absolutely not what it is
0: yeah i agree with that it's uh i think the game's utterly beautiful uh i they focus on the the pixelated stuff almost to a fault uh but i like you say it's really striking i i really like the character design um now there's something i'm going to bring up which kind of ties into something i'm going to talk about later but uh it's I, there's some weird differences like uh, when you go into battle your character sprite is still like the chibi 16-bit style mm-hmm. and then the enemies are way more detailed way bigger look more
1: realistic well that harkens back they... to the classic final fantasy because it was the same deal back then yeah
0: yeah but i i have another theory about that so we'll get into that shortly <laughs> first conspiracy
2: um, um, well yeah I had always figured out what it was going to look like because I played the demos to death plural um, so I, I do think that the way that the graphics have been described is can be confusing to people that have never actually looked at the demo before and just seen the asset art but um, I think for me it wasn't just the aggressive blur filter it was the, the, the way that they have like speckly light effects when there's sunshine in the game, like, I just, every time I was kind of walking somewhere and it was meant to be, you know, early in the day and there was meant to be sunlight everywhere, there'd be these dots that kind of flash over the top of the screen where the quote-unquote sun is supposed to be. And I found that, I actually got a bit of a headache from just, like, looking too hardly at them. Like, if every time I passed my, glaze, passed my gaze over them, those lights kind of, like, flash and kind of stick out. And I found that that ruins some of the more poignant, I guess, quote-unquote cutscenes that are part of side quest whereby you're like, as Andrew said, on a vista, looking down at something and there's there's these lights just flashing away like LEDs in the background. So, I thought that was not so great. But otherwise, I think the style of the game is completely unique to the eShop and to to modern games. And by modern, I mean the past couple of years. I don't mean looking back beyond that. Um, So, I think that it is a very visually striking game. But... I, you know, I'm not someone that thinks a game has to look beautiful for it to be great. I mean, if you like how that looks, yeah, no, it's probably stylish. And I can see why people are fangirling slash fanboying slash appreciating it. Um, But, you know, it's not the kind of game like Okami, whereby the art style is so wrapped up in the core of the game and the mechanic style of the game that... It's the kind of game that you buy on site because you like the art style. The art here is nice. It's not that kind of game whereby it, you can build a whole story around it or a whole mechanic around it.
0: And I'm talking about mechanics, the combat. It is uh, old school JRPG, menu-based and turn-based. Uh, it has a similar system here to Bravely Default. It's by the same team, where you uh, every round you will earn a boost point uh, and you can spend up to four of these, at least initially, uh, to boost the power of an attack. Uh, so you, there's a strategy around when you use them, how you save them. Uh, enemy weaknesses come in the form of their weaknesses to the particular weapon or attack you use. Uh, I'm super enjoying this element. So the the game's pretty grindy. Mm. Uh, so basically... The first area is roughly level 5, so I think we've all come up with different strategies to deal with this. Uh, Mine has been, I picked Olbrich to begin with, I got his first part of the story out of the way, went to go complete that, and then I just grinded on the way there till he was level 10, then finished his story. That opens up the world. I then went and got my next character, which which was Tressa, the merchant. Started her part, went on the way to to finish that, stopped and I uh, grinded to get her to level 10, and I think that's the way I'm going to do it, because it's sort of, although level 5 is the recommended, it's going to front load a part of, part of that, and I'm going to focus on all the chapter 1s, and that should bring Albrecht to the, his required level for level 2 which is level 27 it's quite a jump um, so in my rambles I've got away from the, uh, the point of the combat there but uh, yeah so I'm the point was that I'm enjoying the grind of the combat a whole deal because that it's a lot of fun just to go through the battles uh, are you finding that Andrew?
1: As far as What do you mean by grinding? Are you actually stopping and, like, running in circles and fighting enemies until you get to a certain point? Yes. Oh, Oh. okay. I have not had to do that at all. I just go to the next boss, and I'm fine on the levels that I am. So far, I'm not—I'm only—I've only only done four of the chapter ones. But when I get to an area or when I get to a boss, I've found that I've been the right level that I need to be to be there. So uh, I— have not felt it necessary to grind at all yet and looking at the levels it expects you to be when you do chapter two of uh, my first chapter two that i unlocked was it wants me to be level 24 i'm feeling my characters are going to be about level 24 when i finish all the chapter ones so it, the balance from what i can see here at the outset you know saying commenting on something that i actually haven't played yet it, it seems fine
0: So, uh, the reason I've started doing that is because uh, a lot of the reviews or a lot of commentary around the reviews were saying that structurally it sort of ruins the flow by making you stop and forcing you to grind levels to be at a suitable level to progress. So, and I, I just naturally have this thing where I try and front load as much of that as possible so I can just keep a good pace through large portions of the game. Um. And then I also get like a little OCD over the levels; like I have to get them to an even number before I can move <laughs> on, and it's usually a multiple of ten. Uh, so, yeah, so it's partly just my strategy that I use on all JRPGs, and and partly just from the criticisms I've heard on the game. Yeah. Uh, what what's your strategy been, Jenny?
2: Um, well, I have done my loop of all the um, of all the first chapters for everyone and um so far in my experience i haven't had to grind either um i haven't had to but i have done it like andy i like getting my characters to set multiples multiples of two in my case um and i don't like them being too far apart so i i have done a bit of grinding not in the way that you have described andy so i'll sort of like You know how you've got the option to fast travel to certain areas in the map. I've just been manually walking around. If I have to get to somewhere differently, if I think, oh, I want to visit Therion's town now, I'll just walk them back to Therion's town from wherever they are on the map. So not so much running in circles, but just re-exploring those areas. Um, And I've only had to do, I guess, I've only really had to go out of my way once or twice, just because, let's say, I wanted to go all the way back to Ophelia's and I was at Primrose's, for example. Um, But other than that, I've not actually needed to to grind, and I'm exactly at the right level of 23 um, for one of the chapter twos that I'm wanting to start. So it's worked out. Um, So for those of you who are worried about grinding or don't like front-loading it like Andy and I do, um, there's not really much of a need to, even if your whole party is not at the recommended level for a particular chapter arc, it's enough if you have, in my experience at least, it's enough if you have one of them out of slightly above and the rest kind of close to it i found that that's been all right for me so far um and combat wise i'm just really enjoying the fact that each battle can be approached almost like a mind puzzle so for for me while it's really satisfying figuring out in the first try what an enemy is weak to i like making sure that i've got all the question marks of their weaknesses checked off so I'll bring in as varied as varied a party as possible, use all kinds of spells and stuff on it. And it might seem a bit wasteful initially, but really I think it's my way of doing a recon on the enemies in the area, figuring out what they're most likely going to be weak to. So I really enjoy the kind of, I guess, the thing that you have to put into your battle strategy. Like, do you want to wait, waste a couple of turns? Well, not waste, but do you want to use a couple of turns to figure out what what enemies are weak to and then go all in with a really high boosted spell or attack that you know will be super effective? Or do you want it to hold on to your boosts and then use them to break your enemy's armor? Because usually it's, I think, one strike per armor level on the enemy. So if an enemy has six armor, you're going to need six strikes of its vulnerability. Six strikes against its vulnerabilities to actually get it to break and be vulnerable. So you can either save your boost to multiple attack to do multiple attacks against it to break it. Or break it with basic attacks, soak some damage, and then use your boost on a very, very strong spell that you know it's going to be weak to. So I've liked balancing those two competing strategies um, because the game will throw a large variety of enemy parties at you. It will combine enemies that look similar, but may have different weaknesses. It will combine hordes of enemies with just one or two big ones or senior looking ones. And I think it's got um, enemies that not only just sit there like meat shields, like lots of the older games had them, but they, they heal, they actively debuff. And they generally try and give you a tough time, so I'm really enjoying the balance I've had so far in combat. Not sure if you guys have felt that way as well.
1: Yeah, every round is like a little puzzle, uh, because you do get bonus points to the different experience meters that you build up, depending upon how well you do in combat. And one of the best ways is to make sure that your characters never get hit, and I don't know if it happens on purpose, but it seems to be that the turns come out in a specific order that it's possible to get through the fight without taking any damage if you're really looking at what your characters can use versus the turn order of the enemy. So on my first turn, I might have my ranger up first, and they can break a monster that is able to attack immediately after her. So if I do that, then that actually saves some damage being dealt to somebody else on my team, which means that I don't have to spend mana on healing anybody. And every fight kind of unfolds like that. And I don't know if it's designed to be that way or if that's just how it seems to happen through serendipity, but I've really enjoyed uh, analyzing every combat, every fight like that, and strategizing out ways to get through them and focusing more on getting their break meter down instead of uh, just doing as much damage as I can to get the fight over as fast as I can, which is what I would do in almost every other RPG. And uh, the character I chose to start out with was Cyrus, who is the Scholar, uh, which is, he, he's the Black Mage, basically. Uh, and he actually <laughs> starts out with uh, an ability that lets him recognize monsters' weak points at the start of a battle, and he also has another ability he can use to reveal more of them. And if you boost that ability, you can unveil every weak spot that the monster has. So I've really enjoyed using that to uh, you know, bypass the necessity to just use random attacks on monsters to find out what works best. Uh, and also, his spells are really strong. I would say more than 75% of the battles I've done so far have ended when I've done a max boost spell that hits every monster for four to five hundred plus damage actually I think it's getting up to seven hundred and nine hundred damage now as he's getting leveled up and it's just it's very satisfying whittling their break meters down with my other characters and just letting Cyrus just unleash this massive spell on him that just wipes him out. I really enjoy the combat in this game
0: <laughs> yeah i've I've been seeing you tweet about it and I got the impression you were enjoying it a lot more than you were probably expecting to
1: well I don't know and that's you know, I, I've not been into JRPGs much in the past decade, but that's because in the past decade, they've been going down this weird road towards, like, being almost real time, but I like the I like the turn-based stuff. I liked Bravely Default. I like the stuff that this team does. I like how it's a throwback to older style, like, the 90s RPGs that I grew up with. I am still totally on board for those games. I still love those games, and I'm very happy to finally play one that has AAA values put into it and not just something that an indie team put out I like that, yeah
0: um, so just uh, one thing that it has been drawing some criticism for is the storytelling uh, Ginny's touched previously on the the voice acting <laughs> so I have a theory about this, so on the voice acting Alberic, uh is the same voice actor as the character in Ease 8 which is causing me no end of uh, head freezes as I'm hearing them talk but uh, <laughs> Basically, right. All these voice actors—they keep getting work, right? So they're not—they're not bad at their job. And I've heard these voice actors in other media where the the delivery is completely different. So in this game, it's very—they have a very theatrical delivery to all these lines, which a lot of people are just writing off as cheesy. Uh, I think this game is a stage play. So from the delivery, the there's like a slight reverberation on the audio on the, on the dialogue. There's also the whole diorama focus. Mm. That's the second time I've used that word today. But uh, so for the special edition, I've got the compendium edition, which is a book with a pop up diorama. Whenever you go in a building, it's like a stage production. The way the characters are placed isn't just from the. It's two D throwback element. I think I think it's a stage play. Just the the way the lines are delivered, how each character talks in turn, the way they talk, the things they say. I think they've pulled a Super Mario 2 on us.
1: Three. Sorry,
0: Super Mario Brothers three. Fired <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I could see that.
2: Yeah, I, I can see how that's not the craziest thing I've heard. Like you're not, you're definitely not on jet fuel, can't melt steel beams, <laughs> you know, you're not at that level. And um, honestly, any excuse that that makes um, Hanit's voice or gives me some kind of reason or excuse as to why Hanit speaks the way she speaks, I'm open to it. I want to hear it. I just want to know um, who she hurt in a past life to receive this sort of dialogue that she's gotten. Um, so yeah, I mean, sure. Um, if that's one way of, of putting it or justifying it, I'm open to it. I think it's interesting (laughs) now that, now that you say that my, I'm kind of visualizing in my head now how the characters kind of seem to almost pop out, um, of the environment in the way that they do kind of like a, I guess like a, like a stage setup, you know, like those old school picture books you'd have whereby a stage would pop up and then you'd see the characters kind of framed in, in that way. I think it's what Andy was describing when he mentioned um, yeah. the diorama he's got so that's what i thought of when you said that so yeah it's not it's not impossible and like i said i'm open to anything that will justify why han it sounds the way she does so sure why not <laughs>
0: so we'll leave it at that for now so we'll uh, we'll come back to this in the coming weeks as because we're all enjoying it we're all going to keep playing it i assume mm-hmm.
1: ready go
0: So let's move on to Smash Brothers Ultimate Predictions. Uh, so my prediction is I believe that there's going to be some form of motion control in the game. They've got the Joy-Cons. They're intent on providing options and different ways to play. I think that's a, a shoo-in. Uh, Andrew, what's your prediction?
1: Uh, I think Nintendo is going to use this opportunity as they have done in the past with Ice Climbers and Kid Icarus to revive one of their forgotten franchises. I think we're going to see some wave race in this. Ah, I like it.
0: And Ginny?
2: Cool. Um, well, my having having played um, pretty much um, only Captain Toad this week if I wasn't playing Octopath, I have a thing about how how patient and how kind and saintly Toadette is and I think it would be great if they could put her in the game Um, I'm sure Toll will be in it somehow but I think Toadette is much more deserving and also she's not impersonating a military officer so she is probably the more (laughs) lawful citizen of the two so yeah put her in there reward her for putting up with Captain Toad's shenanigans and carrying his stuff for him all the time
0: That's been your best one for a few weeks I think (laughs) (laughs) Okay, folks, what are we playing over the coming
2: week? Um, I'll be playing Project Octopath, trying to, um, well, definitely, I think, getting past Chapter 2 for everyone again. Or maybe I'll narrow down four of my favorites and push them all through to the end. Um, But apart from that, also going to be playing Hand of Fate 2, which I'm just so pleased it's going to be in the Switch recently announced of course yes that's right and i remember seeing it at pax australia last year being blown away and i thought oh this is gonna be amazing imagine if it came to the switch and it has so i'm very happy for that and of course in my downtime um playing the super mario odyssey levels hopefully of captain toad
1: hand of fate too for me as well
0: cool and i'm going to be stuck on uh, jrpg mageddon for the foreseeable future (laughs) Uh, i have no idea how i'm going to manage that and i'm going to be playing captain toad on weekends so expect updates on that one Thank you for listening to this episode of the Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It'll really help us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Be sure to join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. Links are in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. If you'd like to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. The details are on our website. Thanks in advance. Uh, and if you want to follow us all individually on Twitter, you can do. I'm at Flamerose Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. He also streams at twitch.tv forward slash Play Critically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. more one two three click click cool that'll do I kept nearly saying switch then
2: one two three switch <laughs> yeah
0: nice the follow up to one two switch
1: <laughs> whoa what the hell was what was, was that, that? <laughs> sorry <laughs> that was my huh? that was my phone <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I was
2: like, is that a chainsaw in the background? Like, (laughs) do we need to be worried?
0: Uh, I thought it was going to be one of those things. You play Octopath Traveler and seven days later you get murdered by a (laughs) chainsaw-wielding (laughs) Octopath.